The Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces threw out a rape conviction based on discovery violations and, in so doing, provided us with an opportunity to dive into Military Rules of Evidence 701 and 703. Cue the music. I'm Daryl Johnson, and it's 5 o'clock here in the National Capital Region, which means it's time to pour a drink, sit back, and listen to a little Litigator Libations. Litigator Libations is a podcast designed for Military Defense Council with the goal of providing informative and hopefully helpful content in a short and easy-to-digest format. The podcast is unofficial in that it is not endorsed by the Air Force or the Trial Defense Division. The thoughts are those of the presenter and are not meant as legal advice or official guidance. Defenders must always conduct their own research and analysis. With that said, if Air Force Defense Council have questions, concerns, or suggestions, please reach out to me. In today's episode, I'm going to discuss CAF's decision in United States v. WARDA, which was published on September 29, 2023. The opinion is important for Defense Counsel because it shows the importance of fighting for discovery and how Defense Counsel can ensure the record reflects the prejudice to the defense when the government fails to produce relevant and necessary evidence. After that, we'll get a quick update from Major Kira Ryan on character evidence. Okay, first I want to say that I really like how the Warda opinion starts off. The second paragraph in the opinion is completely unnecessary and yet very much appreciated by me because the CAF admonishes the military judge, and really the convening authority as well, for failing to provide the defense its requested expert. This is not the issue in the case, it's just background, and the paragraph ends by saying, quote, All parties, including the military judge, would have benefited from said expert. End of quote. And the court notes that the denial likely led to the confusion on the discovery issue, which eventually resulted in CAF setting aside the rape conviction. So, who was the expert, and what was the evidence at issue? The defense had requested the convening authority fund a defense expert on immigration law. That was apparently denied, and the defense filed a motion to compel. The military judge denied the motion, likely believing that defense counsel, as attorneys, could simply research the law themselves to become expert enough. The result was rampant speculation about how the immigration process works, the rules on lawful permanent resident status, the information held by the United States Customs and Immigration Service on a resident alien, and how access to those records works. So, why is this information important? Well, the alleged victim in this case, M.B., was from Amman, Jordan. Sergeant Warda met M.B. over Facebook in 2012, and they had a virtual relationship up until Sergeant Warda traveled to Jordan to meet her in December of 2015. Things were pretty serious by that point, as evidenced by the fact that Sergeant Warda took his family with him so that they could meet her. Things went well, and Sergeant Warda asked M.B.'s family for permission to marry her, which they gave. They immediately got married, but MB remained in Jordan until May of 2017 when she traveled to New York to get her green card. The term green card refers to a permanent resident card, which provides proof that the holder of the card is lawfully in the United States and is permitted to remain in the United States permanently. Just kidding. That would be way too easy. Despite the fact that the card is called a permanent resident card, how long the person holding the card can actually remain in the United States depends on the rules under which the card was issued. 
In MB's case, she was a conditional resident, so permanent for her meant two years. Her green card was set to expire in May of 2019. As best I can tell from the opinion and a very small amount of research, MB obtained her green card and conditional status based on her marriage to Sergeant Warda. The law required her to file a petition to remove the conditional status prior to the expiration of her green card. Normally, the sponsoring spouse joins in that petition. However, the resident alien may seek to have the condition removed without their spouse, their sponsoring spouse, if the marriage was entered into in good faith, but the couple separated after the petitioner was battered or was subject to extreme cruelty by the U.S. citizen spouse. As I mentioned earlier, Sergeant Warda and MB got married in December 2015, and she came to the United States in May 2017. However, things were rocky pretty much from the start of the marriage. According to their faith, a husband can divorce his wife simply by declaring it so. It's called a talak. Sergeant Warda divorced MB by talak even before she traveled to the United States, but he later rescinded it. Apparently, the rule is that the husband can rescind the divorce unless he invokes talak three times, at which point the divorce is final and there is no going back. That happened in September 2017, just a few months after MB had traveled to the United States and obtained her green card. At that point, the couple separated, but MB remained in the United States. In September 2017, she approached Sergeant Warda's brother and told him that she wanted U.S. citizenship and the dowry that she had been promised. Sergeant Warda's brother told her that he could not give her either of those things. She responded saying, quote, you will see what I'm going to do and you will regret it, end of quote. The next month, MB reported to civilian law enforcement that Sergeant Warda had raped her on multiple occasions, including in August 2017, which formed the basis of Sergeant Warda's court-martial. Despite MB's green card being set to expire in May 2019, she remained in the United States. In addition, even after May 2019, she repeatedly traveled to Jordan and returned to the United States. She started attending college in the United States, and she took a paid job with an organization that provides immigration services. Each of those things strongly imply that MB was lawfully present in the United States, which means she either had her conditional status removed or she remained based on some other legal status. The defense suggested that MB fabricated the rape allegation so that she could remain in the United States and eventually obtain U.S. citizenship, like she had been promised. Therefore, the defense submitted a discovery request, essentially seeking immigration records that would explain her immigration status and the basis for that status. In a subsequent request, the defense specifically asked whether MB had requested a, quote, I-918 Supplemental B certification, end of quote, and if so, copies of the relevant documents. On this, the CAF provides an example of how an expert on immigration law might have been helpful. CAF briefly explains that, quote, an I-918 Supplemental B certification affords temporary immigration benefits to an alien who is a victim of a qualifying criminal offense, such as sexual assault. End of quote. Significantly, the I-918 Supplement B is generally submitted by a law enforcement agency. In other words, it's used by law enforcement to convince Customs and Immigration to allow the person to remain in the United States so long as they are cooperating in the investigation and prosecution of the accused. As I read it, the defense was asking whether MB had requested the Air Force or civilian law enforcement 
to submit the I-918, Supplement B, to facilitate her remaining in the United States. I point that out because that form was just one possible avenue for her to remain in the United States. It is more likely she would have remained in an immigrant status and sought to remove her conditional status based on being a victim of domestic violence at the hands of her husband's sponsor. This is important in light of the military judge's finding of fact, but for now, let's focus on the discovery. In this case, the government appears to have been very reasonable in that they saw the logic in the defense's request and agreed that the evidence was relevant and necessary. However, when they reached out to Customs and Immigration, they were told to pound sand. They would not provide any records without the consent of MB, citing Privacy Act concerns. When made aware of this, the defense submitted a supplemental discovery request asking that the government seek a waiver from MB, which the government did, but MB declined. The defense then filed a motion to dismiss the charge or to prohibit the government from calling MB as a witness due to MB's and the government's refusal to disclose the records in violation of RCM 701. In the alternative, if the records were not subject to compulsory process, the defense moved to abate the proceedings pursuant to RCM 703 until MB waived confidentiality and the records were made available. In its response, the government conceded that the records were relevant and necessary and sought to work around the victim's refusal to consent by asking the military judge to issue an order requiring Customs and Immigration to release the records for an in-camera review and if responsive records were present, to provide them to the parties under a protective order. The military judge issued that order in June 2020. The order specifically provided that MB's address and phone number would be redacted and that defense counsel would receive only one copy of the relevant redacted records and that they would be prohibited from copying any portion of the records. Customs and Immigration responded with another denial asserting that they were statutorily precluded from disclosing them, citing the Privacy Act and the Violence Against Women Act, 8 U.S.C. 1367. With the government's refusal to produce the relevant and necessary records, the defense moved under RCM 703 for a continuance or to abate the proceedings. RCM 703E2 states that when evidence that is essential to a fair trial is lost, destroyed, or otherwise not subject to compulsory process, quote, the military judge shall grant a continuance or other relief in order to attempt to produce the evidence or shall abate the proceedings, unless the unavailability of the evidence is the fault of or could have been prevented by the requesting party. End of quote. The rule only applies if there is no adequate substitute for the unavailable evidence. Also, if you are following along with the case in hand, you will note that the case actually cited RCM 703 F1. That is because it was applying an earlier version of the MCM, but the rule remains the same. So to break that down, RCM 703 E2 essentially requires a finding that 1. The evidence sought is essential to a fair trial. 2. That the evidence is lost, destroyed, or otherwise not subject to compulsory process. 3. Its unavailability was not due to the defense and four, that there is no adequate substitute for the testimony. If these four things are satisfied, the military judge must order a continuance or other relief to obtain the evidence. As pointed out by CAF, quote, if a continuance or other relief cannot produce the missing evidence, the remaining remedy for a violation of RCM 703E2 is abatement of the proceedings, end of quote. 
That was Calf quoting its early opinion in United States v. Simmermacher, 74MJ196, from 2015. Except that I once again substituted in the current rule. At trial, the military judge did not address these questions because he found that the defense did not establish, by a preponderance of the evidence, that the records actually existed. The CAF very easily pointed out how that was an abuse of discretion. The CAF cites eight separate pieces of evidence that all spoke to the existence of the records, including the fact that MB testified that she refused to consent to the release of those records because of her purported concern that Sergeant Warda would learn of her address and contact information. The records obviously existed, and the military judge abused his discretion in finding that the defense failed to establish their existence by a preponderance of the evidence. Now, to be fair to the military judge, or more accurately, to call out the military judge on his shortcomings, the military judge focused only on the I-918 Supplement B when denying the defense's motion. This, once again, is changing the question to fit the answer. The defense had essentially requested all immigration records that spoke to MB's change of status, but the military judge focused on that one record to find that the defense fell short in establishing the existence of the missing evidence. The CAP found that the military judge's finding as to the I-918 Supplement B was not an abuse of discretion, but insofar as that applied to the remaining records, the military judge abused his discretion. The military judge also shifted the question by focusing on the fact that the records were not under the control of military authorities for purposes of RCM 701, which was clearly true. But the defense motion sought abatement under RCM 703, and the military judge failed to conduct the RCM 703 analysis, which also led to CAF to find that his denial of the defense motion was an abuse of discretion. The CAF specifically noted that the parties conceded the evidence was of central importance and essential to a fair trial. The CAF agreed, citing the defense's motion, which pointed out that the government's case relied completely on the credibility of MB, and pointing out that no matter what the records contained, they were relevant and necessary. If the record contained an allegation of abuse, it was probative as to whether her allegation was made for purposes of remaining lawfully in the United States. If the record did not contain an allegation of abuse, it called into question her allegation of abuse. As the defense noted, MB's immigration status was the central tenet of the theme of the defense's case. In denying the defense's motion for abatement, the military judge stated he would allow the defense, quote, substantial leeway on cross-examination, end of quote. Although the military judge did not specifically state that providing the defense substantial leeway on cross-examination was done as an adequate substitute for the missing factual evidence, the CAF considered whether or not it was. The majority of the court found substantial leeway on cross-examination was not an adequate substitute. The opinion discusses the cross-examination and discusses why it fell short. Specifically, MB testified that she didn't understand the immigration rules and, as I read it, she feigned ignorance on her current status or any knowledge that she could remain in the United States as a victim of domestic violence. She also testified that she didn't know the military judge's protective order would have prevented Sergeant Warda from learning her current address or contact information despite having been provided a copy of the order. She said she didn't know about such things and had not read the order and that others had advised her he would have access to her address and contact information. The court points out that the defense was, quote, 
stuck with her answers, end of quote, because they did not have the records that could have impeached her testimony. Thus, vigorous cross-examination was not a substitute for the actual, factual evidence held by Customs and Immigration. This was the right answer because defense cross-examination questions are generally not evidence unless the witness agrees. The inability to put before the witness or the members factual evidence that either contradicts the witness or demonstrates actual or potential bias can be devastating. However, I note that Judge Maggs would have come down differently, which I find disappointing and a little shocking. In my view, the majority is right on target in this case, and I highly encourage defenders to read the case and to reread Rules for Courts Marshal 701 and 703. They are incredibly important, and it is a good idea to brush up on them periodically. You will often hear the rules described as RCM 701 applying to evidence that is within the government's control and RCM 703 as evidence outside of the government's control. That is not 100% accurate, but it is a nice shorthand. RCM 701 is titled Discovery, which is pretty broad. It sets out the specific requirements for the production of discovery, but its focus is, understandably, on matters generated during the investigation of the accused and matters that may be admitted or used at trial, or Brady-type materials that must be turned over to the defense. In RCM 701A2, for instance, it requires the government to produce a wide range of items if they are relevant to the defense, belong to the accused, or the government intends to use them at trial. And, quote, the item is within the possession, custody, or control of military authorities. End of quote. RCM 701 also provides remedies for violation of the rule that include an order to compel a continuance or the exclusion of testimony or evidence or, quote, such other order as is just under the circumstances, end of quote. In other words, you could also get a dismissal or abatement, but the sought-after evidence must be under the control of military authorities. Rule for Courts Martial 703, on the other hand, uses broader language. For instance, in RCM 703G, which is titled Procedures for Production of Witnesses and Evidence, it states that, quote, Evidence under the control of the government may be obtained by notifying the custodian of the evidence of the time, place, and date the evidence is required and requesting the custodian to send or deliver the evidence, end of quote. That is capital G, government, and RCM 703 is an executive order. It was issued by the president, the head of the executive. I would argue that in WARDA, no subpoena was required. Customs and immigration are part of the executive branch, and we all work for the same executive. In my view, the trial counsel should have notified the custodian of the record that they needed a copy and why. When Customs and Immigration refused to provide the record, it should have been elevated within the Department of the Air Force until it was resolved. If that eventually takes having the Secretary of Defense call the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, so be it. We are all the same government and... Everyone has a boss. The parties and the court-martial, or the courts, including the appellate courts, agreed to treat the evidence in the Warda case as if they were it was not subject to a subpoena, which I think is correct. The CAF opinion points out in footnote 11 that the records may have been subject to compulsory process because of exceptions under the Privacy Act and the Violence Against Women's Act. I agree those exceptions apply, or likely apply, 
but I'm not sure that makes them subject to a subpoena because of the unitary executive theory. Because all executive agencies ultimately work for the same person, the president, internal conflicts within the executive branch must be elevated and resolved within the executive branch. Refusal to comply with a subpoena could result in having two executive departments on opposite sides of a V in court, which will never happen. The Department of Justice will not allow it because of the unitary executive theory. I include all that because, in my view, when seeking evidence held by an executive agency, the defense should take the position that the evidence is not subject to compulsory process. The trial counsel must follow RCM 703-G2 and simply notify the custodian of the evidence of the time, place, and date the evidence is required and request the custodian to send or deliver the evidence. If the custodian in that other federal agency refuses, the appropriate remedy is a continuance until the issue can be elevated and resolved within the executive or the proceedings should be abated. Before I turn it over to Major Ryan, I would also note that Judge Olson and Judge Hardy join in a concurrence in WARDA that seeks to extremely limit the significance of the holding. They assert that, quote, to be clear at the outset, only a limited subset of domestic violence cases is at issue here, end of quote, and then go on to assert that the, for the law to apply, the victim must not be a U.S. citizen, the allegation must be tied to their status in the United States, the witness must testify and specifically deny seeking immigrant or non-immigrant status based on being a victim of crime or domestic violence, the defense must have no other way to refute that testimony, and the defense must file a timely motion. I find the concurrence offensive for several reasons. First, that is not how the law works. The value of precedent would be worthless if it only applied under the exact same fact pattern as in the original case. Second, they assert that the issue will not even be ripe until after the witness testifies. And they require the defense to file a timely motion. The concurrence is internally inconsistent, offensive, and meaningless. If you identify evidence that is not within the control of military authorities and that is essential to your client to receive a fair trial, regardless of the facts or context, you should be citing to WARDA as support for the fact that RCM 703 means what it says. The evidence must either be produced, an adequate substitute to the evidence must be made available, or the proceeding must be abated. I'm now going to pass it over to Major Ryan, who, at the time of her recording, was still Captain Ryan, which explains how she introduces herself. Over to you, Major Ryan. Greetings, litigators. I am Captain Kira Ryan, a senior defense counsel out of District 1. Today, we're going to cover character evidence. So first, I want to touch on the three methods of admitting it, and then I want to lay a simple foundation for character opinion testimony. Now, remember, character evidence is any pattern of behavior that is morally commendable or reprehensible. And there are three ways that you can admit it. So the first more traditional way is by reputation or opinion testimony. That's the first way. The second way is by specific instances of conduct, but you can only use that method if the character trait is an essential element of the charge. And then the third way is by affidavit, but you can only use the affidavit if you are admitting character of the accused. So there's some exceptions to those latter two. So the more traditional one that we tend to see in court martials is definitely the by reputation or opinion testimony. 
Here is a sample run through for laying foundation for a witness's character trait. So in this hypothetical, I'm calling the accused, my client's best friend, to testify about his character for peacefulness. So let's just run through a very basic foundation. All right. Good morning, Airman Bestie. Who is Airman accused? Oh, he's a friend of mine. How long have you known him? For about three years. How much contact have you had with him during those three years? Uh, I would say probably on a daily basis. Do you two work together? Yeah, we're in the same flight of security forces. Is that how you guys met? Yes, it is. How often do you two see each other at work? Uh, probably at least once or twice per shift and like we catch up and stuff. Do you guys also socialize outside of work? Yes, we do. How often do you guys do so? Probably once a week, sometimes more, sometimes less. What kind of things do you guys do together off-duty? Uh, well, we go out to dinner, see movies, play video games in our dorm room, like stuff like that. Okay, Airman Bestie, so after socializing with him like at least once a week, seeing him at work almost every day for the past three years, do you have an opinion on Airman Accused's character for peacefulness? Yes, I do. And what is that opinion? That he is peaceful. Thanks, Aaron Vesti. No further questions. Now, obviously, that's a very simplified, classic foundation. You can definitely get into more details if you want, but you definitely don't need to. So don't get hung up on each and every time that the witness and the accused or whomever, right, uh, have interacted. Like, we don't need to go into, oh, well, tell me about every time you've gone to the movies together. Or, like, who do you, who else is there at these dinners that you guys go to? Or what video games do you play? I mean, you, sh you certainly can ask those questions if you want to get into it, but you really don't need to, because ultimately it's a subjective analysis. So it's just a matter of whether that particular witness believes that they have had enough exposure with the, with the individual to form an opinion um, for whatever character trait. So some witnesses feel confident forming an opinion after only like two interactions. And some other witnesses can know, you know, somebody like or your client for years and still not really know whether they're peaceful because they don't see them, you know, interact with their spouse or something. So it's completely subjective. So that's character evidence in a very small nutshell. I encourage you all to be creative in your character traits, because like I said, it just has to be something that's repetitive and then morally commendable or reprehensible. And then just be careful about what doors you are opening. The rule goes that if you, you know, if you open the accused door character trait, that's all fine. But if you go into the victims, then you're opening your own client's door on the same character trait as well. So just make sure you're familiar with MRE 405 on what doors you're opening and, and, and staying closed and just be intentional about that decision. Thank you for listening. And I hope it was helpful. Until we meet again, this is Daryl the Decap signing off. Check in with us again in two weeks when we cover a new topic. Until then, any ideas, comments, or suggestions you have are always welcome. You can email me at william.johnson.147 at us.af.mil. Thanks again for listening, and thank you for all you do. I wish you the best of luck litigating your cases. Just like you always do Till the blue skies drive the dark clouds far away and
say hello to the friends that I know.